Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mamina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show... So these are very harmful products. They don't represent a low level of harm. Is a new bill against credit gambling flawed? The Alliance for Gambling Reform hints at potential issues. An organisation is urging safer caravanning practices for Australians on vacation this holiday season. Uh, At this point, I think we'd have to acknowledge that the COP28 has been a substantive failure in solving the climate emergency. It, It has left us hanging from the precipice by our fingernails. COP28 summit closes without a firm commitment to end fossil fuels. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air right across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today. A new bill targeting gambling could potentially have flaws according to the Alliance for Gambling Reform. There have been concerns of gambling lobby influence and ongoing corruption. A joint analysis with the Alliance for Gambling Reform and Transparency International Australia reveals that the gambling sector employs more lobbyists than any other adult industries, including tobacco and alcohol, sparking questions about transparency and the government's commitment to tackling gambling harm without dedicated resources. I spoke to CEO of Alliance for Gambling Reform, Carol Bennett, on the government's commitment to curbing gambling harm. How does the Senate uh, Senate's bill to ban gambling on credit bring up concerns about its effectiveness? Well, look, we're concerned about a couple of things. Firstly, that uh, lottery products are exempted from this legislation. And we've been concerned about that from the beginning. Um, it really, uh, games like Keno um, should not be exempted because we know that you can place a bet every three minutes. And there are some lottery type products that you can spend up to $10,000 a time on. So these are very harmful products. They don't represent a low level of harm. Um, and we particularly know that uh, young men are impacted by uh, the harm related to lotteries. Um, so it is uh, something that we think it should not be exempt from the bill. We've also seen when the Senate uh, approved this bill last week that buy now, pay later schemes um, would be exempted from the government's intervention if they found that um, they were getting around um, and exploiting loopholes in the legislation. Um, we're a bit disappointed to see that because we know that while the big um, buy now, pay later schemes will not allow credit for gambling. Um, That doesn't stop new players into the field from uh, doing just that. So there's a few loopholes in there that mean that people will still be gambling with money they simply don't have. According to the joint analysis from Alliance for Gambling Reform and and Transparency um, International Australia, what was found yeah. out about the gambling sector's influence on political lobbying compared to other industries? Well, what we found is that um, political lobbying by the gambling industry was double 
that of many other industries in the sort of harmful products area. Um, and that was a real concern for us uh, because it does signal that, you know, this very cashed up industry that is very powerful and influential on government decision makers um, is also, uh, you know, investing enormous amounts of money well beyond other harmful product industries to try and maintain their influence and ensure that they get favourable regulations directed towards them. So that's a real concern for us. Um, and it does signal that we need to um, be looking at the, the stranglehold that these groups are having over decision-making affecting them. And how is the government's approach to gambling harm reduction different to tobacco, alcohol or other industries? It's completely different to any other harmful industry, which is extraordinary really, uh, especially when you consider how much uh, we are ahead of any other country in the world in losses and harm. The reality is we simply do not have a public health approach to gambling-related harm in Australia. Um, we don't invest in prevention in harm reduction initiatives. Um, we don't even have a funded peak body in the harm reduction area in gambling. Um, you know, all of these other areas do have these sorts of things. They have appropriate, um, you know, treatment services that, um, you know, comply with a national quality framework, for instance. Um, we don't have that. They have independently funded research. We have very limited independently funded research in the gambling area. I mean, there are countless examples of where we really do, um, you know, um, stand out uh, from other harmful industries when it comes to the approach that's taken to gambling-related harm, and that needs to be addressed. Um, the Murphy Report, the, the recent federal inquiry into online gambling and its harms very clearly set out uh, the need to address gambling-related harm in this country. And we're still waiting on the government six months later for a response to that report. Is there anything else that can be done on a governmental scope to reduce the harm of gambling? There's so much that can be done. Um, you know, the most significant um, recommendation in the Murphy report was a ban on gambling advertising phased in over three years. Um, obviously, that's very popular with the community, but there's a whole raft of other uh, measures, 31 recommendations in that report that are all very good uh, recommendations for things like, you know, addressing and restricting inducements um, because we know that's a big issue for people when it comes to gambling harm. Introducing a national regulator, taking a public health approach, making sure that there is a really clear national strategy to address gambling-related harm. So we need to see the government step up and lead on this because if we don't, we're going to see a future generation of young Australians becoming the next big generation of gambling losers. That was CEO of Alliance for Gambling Reform, Carol Bennett, speaking to The Wire. The COP28 summit in Dubai concludes today without a strong agreement to phase out fossil fuels. Instead, countries like the US, UK, Japan and Australia won't sign an agreement to quote-unquote death certificates, referring to the Pacific countries already affected by climate change. 
the wise Eduardo Jordan spoke with National Radio News correspondent Amanda Kopp and presenter from River FM, Sean O'Shaughnessy, about the summit's remarks. First of all, Amanda, the COP28 concludes today. Uh, what did the federal government contribute to the summit so far? Yeah, so this was a particularly interesting COP28 in Dubai. It was particularly interesting just because so many of those countries in that part of the world are big fossil fuel exporters. And essentially all the experts are saying that we're really not on track to limiting global warming by 1.5 degrees. And Chris Bowen, the energy and climate minister for Australia, who's over there at the moment, essentially in his sort of big speeches to the conference said that we need to keep this idea of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees alive. Uh, He said that that was the most important thing for the conference to agree on. And he said, interestingly enough for Australia, because we do produce a lot of fossil fuels like gas and coal, that the phase out of fossil fuels was actually a key part to keeping that alive. He said that fossil fuels must have, quote, no ongoing role to play in our energy systems if the world was to keep 1.5 degrees alive. And essentially, that really is because Australia is is trying to help a lot of Pacific nations who are at a real crux point, really, where they're watching their own islands, their homelands go underwater because of rising sea levels, because of this global warming. So Australia is one of the countries uh, like the U.S., the U.K. and Japan that they say they won't sign an agreement to debt certificates. What does this mean? Yeah, so this essentially is talking about the Pacific Island nations. So at the moment, you know, we're already seeing Pacific Island countries go underwater. Previously, where, you know, people sort of had water lapping at their ankles, now it's sort of up to their chests. So it's a real threat to a lot of Pacific Island nations. And the agreement at the moment doesn't commit to phasing out fossil fuels. And so the Pacific Island countries, as well as some of their supporters like the US, the UK, Canada and Australia, have said that, you know, we're not going to sign an agreement that is essentially meaning that these countries are going to continue to go underwater. So it's a pretty strong statement, but, you know, that's that's where we're at with climate change. You know, we've got to, it, it's no longer that we can delay anything. You know, things have to happen now and they have to happen really quickly. Sean, according to your opinion and your expertise in climate action, what were the successes and the failures from this meeting? Uh, At this point, I think we'd have to acknowledge that the COP28 has been a substantive failure in solving the climate emergency. It it has left us hanging from the precipice by our fingernails with no ladder to get us up safely, uh, to to stretch a, a metaphor. The fossil fuel industry seems to have succeeded in their efforts to block consensus on phasing out their deadly products. And instead, they've watered it down to a much weaker formulation that will not effectively address our climate crisis. And the U.S. State Department has called for the draft agreement language to be strengthened. And the European Union has said that the new text was clearly insufficient and not adequate to addressing the problem that we are here to address. Their representatives from Pacific Island nations, Samoa and the Marshall Islands, have already suffering the impacts of these rising seas. And they've said that the draft was a death warrant. You know, we will not go silently to our watery graves, said the head of the Marshall Islands delegation. And we cannot sign on to a text that does not have strong commitment to phasing out fossil fuels, said the Samoan Environment Minister. So, I mean, I think it's not particularly uh, a positive uh, roundup for this COP. So, Sean, you've been covering climate action protests and events across New South Wales and also in Queensland, too. What's the community reaction to COP28 overall? 
I think in general, people who are aware of the COP28 process are frustrated by the slowness of it. There's 28 of 28 years that this has been going on uh, and uh, our climate gases have been increasing every year since. We're not heading in the right direction with this process so far and people are becoming increasingly frustrated, anxious and angry about it. I mean, we saw the, uh, the COP out protests in Sydney where people were taking to the streets and uh, marching and, and disrupting traffic etc and those people are basically giving up on this process i i think uh, there's a broad spectrum of views within the environment movement as there is within the broadest community uh, there's a lot of people who see this as just one part of the process and and i think that's the most positive step that we can take out of this is that uh, the, you know the community doesn't see the cop as the answer to our problems what can we expect in the future after cop 28 so from today onwards and before COP29? Well, I mean, at least from an Australian perspective, I think Australia under the new Labor government is really forging ahead when it comes to renewable energy. You know, we're building more solar farms, we're building a lot of wind farms, particularly offshore wind as well. So that's, that's really encouraging. But, you know, Australia is still one of the largest fossil fuel exporters in the world. You know, that's things like coal and gas, and that's certainly not stopping anytime soon. So even while it's encouraging that Chris Bowen, the energy minister, has said that he wants to see a phase out of fossil fuels globally. You know, I think Australia has to take a long, hard look at itself in terms of how we actually contribute to that supply. But the interesting thing here, I think, as well for Australia, is that the government wants to host COP31, which is in 2026. And so there's been a lot of discussions around, you know, are we actually committing enough to the global fight for climate action? You know, do we deserve to be hosting something that important? Yes, I'd agree with Amanda on all of that. And also, I'd say we can look forward to, over the next year, a continuation of the increasing temperatures across the globe, that we will see the most extreme weather conditions that we have ever been recorded, that uh, we are likely to see, uh, you know, here in Australia, we are looking down the barrel of an El Nino, uh, three years long, potentially, and that that could, will almost certainly lead to another black summer fire season over that uh, period of time. So, you know, potentially between now and the next COP, what we'll be looking at is uh, is increasing desperation and uh, chaos in our climate itself. So what we'll see is that although there's, uh, you know, the wording has been haggled down from phasing out to, to reducing fossil fuels, I think at the next COP, we're going to see a lot more momentum for actually saying, no, this is going to draw a line under this. That was a presenter from River FM, Sean O'Shaughnessy, ending the story by the wise Eduardo Jordan. The federal government has announced a new strategy for Australian migration system that seeks to solve national issues with skilled individuals. According to Settlement Services International, recognition of skill and experience has been insufficient. The wise Calvin Lee asked Settlement Services International Head of Research and Policy, Dr. Tyg McMahon, about what this strategy means for migrant roles in Australian industry. So there are a lot of voices saying what they think this strategy means for the industry. If you could walk us through what's being outlined in the strategy, what's the goal, what works, what maybe needs more thought. So there's a whole heap of things and probably one of the biggest things that I think hasn't been getting a lot of attention because it's perhaps not very interesting to most people 
is that there really is a, a, an intention to develop a much longer term strategy for Australia's population. So rather than having agi baggy every single time the figures come out about how many people are in Australia, having a longer term vision for what our population levels should be, and that's negotiated with the states and territories, and then working from there. Do you have any thoughts on the on the target number? Is it sustainable? Well, I think that uh, I don't have thoughts on the specific number, but the, the, the government has, has signaled its intention to bring down the number of residents in Australia at any given time. And they argue that the numbers that we have in Australia right now, and I've heard others, not just the government, argue this, it's a, it's a post-COVID bounce. It, it's a whole range of things, but it's people left Australia, not a lot of people, some people didn't come back, and then there's people who are in Australia who will in fact eventually leave. So um, so we're, we're in a, believe it or not, a post-COVID environment when it comes to net overseas migration. And, and the goal is to sort of normalise those levels? Normalise those levels, but also predict those levels into the future so that we, we actually know that the social infrastructure and the physical infrastructure to support migration are really in play. And we know that Australians really support migration, and that although support wanes at different piece, uh, points in time, but and that they have they do see that the migration program is actually part of who we are and part of the, the, the we've had multiple benefits from migration. So the, the, the what this migration strategy attempts to do is to recalibrate and reset that and have a longer term vision for the numbers. And one of the other sort of core tenets of this strategy is sort of the reform around international education. I'm not really across that. Calvin, it's, an, it's a very specialised area and our organisation does deal very specifically with the international education market and international education students. But I think that what the government again is aiming to do is to recalibrate that so that the people that are coming to Australia to study are more likely to, be, to have the skills that Australia might need in the future. And you touched on it a bit before, but what about beyond GDP? How does normalising our migration levels affect us as a society? I, I agree. How does it? Think, how it, it's important for us to think beyond simply G, GDP, and I think we do need the social infrastructure to be in place. We 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 have that social infrastructure in place in large degree, and I suppose what it does what it does speak to is that issue of maintaining that social infrastructure in Australia. We have very high levels of social cohesion in Australia. They've dipped in, in post-pandemic. There's a bit less trust in government. There's some metrics. But generally, we still have a very strong level of social cohesion in Australia. And that, I agree, is a very important metric to keep in mind in relation to migration. We At SSI, we're really keen for anything that can be done to make sure that we actually use the potential of people who come to Australia, either when they come overseas or when they, after they've, you know, 10 years after arriving. We want people who have maybe stayed at home because of caring duty to be able to rejoin the workforce in Australia at the level at which they are skilled. And at the moment, we have quite a clunky, well, for a long time, we've had a quite a clunky skills and qualifications recognition system. Uh, the government, this strategy is going some way towards um, moving forward with that and trying to improve things, and we really welcome that, but there is more work to do in that area.
That was Dr. Tyke McMahone from Settlement Services International speaking with the wise Calvin Lee. The summer holiday season has just started with many Australians kicking off their vacation with caravanning. An organisation called Drive is challenging the government's lack of towing endorsements on full licensed Australians and urging mandatory training for towing. Currently, there are no specific restrictions for towing with a full licence. Allowing anyone with a C-Class licence to tow various vehicles. I spoke to James Ward, the Director of Content at Drive, about safety concerns around Australians using towing on busy roads during these holidays. With the growing popularity of caravanning, uh, why does Drive want a towing endorsement added to Australian driver's licence? When you look at it, there's nothing that stops you from, from being a driver who's, who's just sort of you know, driven a, a hatchback or a small SUV around town to all of a sudden decide and go, you know what, I'm going on this great adventure and you're filling up a, a tow vehicle and you know, potentially a very large trailer that can be a six-tonne articulated vehicle out there on the road there's no further training in terms of braking distance there's no training that discusses the weights and the weight tolerances and all the different measurements you need to take into account and we just feel that there's there's an awful lot of trouble you can get yourself into very quickly and very heavily when you're out there towing and if you don't have the right uh, skills it, it could go well it can make a good holiday go bad very quickly so we think a little bit of education here is really all this needs to take it to what will be a, a far safer level. And what's the current situation for training or restrictions around towing for those with a full licence in Australia at the moment? Yeah, so with a, with a full licence, you've got uh, limits on specific vehicles that you can tow with. So you can't drive a truck uh, and you can't move up to uh, anything that is a, I think it's a four and a half tonne uh, weight, which is in a, a light truck license. But if you've got a passenger car license, you can drive a up to like a, a, a Hilux or a Prado or even one of the big American utes with a trailer up to the rating of the gross combination mass of that vehicle with a car license with zero training. Now, training does exist. If you're if you're uh, you know forward thinking and you want to go out and prepare yourself, you can go out and get some training here. But there's no requirement that you do that before. Basically, a, a standard Hilux with a caravan is six tonne. And when you consider a small hatchback is one and a half to, to maybe two tonne for an SUV, that's a massive weight differential that no one gives you any guidance at all or any restriction at all uh, about hitting the road with. And the holiday season is kicking off. What recommendations would you make to holiday goers on towing safely? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the best thing to do is check your weights and work out from your tow vehicle. You all see the brochures where it says this this ute can tow three and a half ton. That doesn't mean you can go up to three and a half ton on the back and, and not worry about it. What you need to be aware of is the gross combination mass, so the weight of the your tow vehicle and the trailer and whatever is in both. So you think if you're filling up water tanks, if you're putting luggage and people and you're putting maybe some push bikes and food, all of a sudden, that's a very, very heavy load that you're carrying there. Uh, a thing to consider, too, is the amount of weight that the trailer pushes down onto the back of the car is called the uh, the tow ball weight. 
and that contributes to the payload of the car as well. So if all of that has sounded like gobbledygook and you, you, you're thinking of hitting the road, best thing to do is go speak to a, uh, a caravan club or even a caravan retailer. There are public way bridges uh, around town where you can go and sort of set up and make sure you've got it. Or if you do have an experienced friend who may be able to give you some advice and some guidance on how to set things up properly, that is the best thing to do. Then check all your tyre pressures are all uh, where they should be. Make sure your car is going to run well, especially if it's carrying a load. If its cooling system is going to work well. Uh, but most of all, if you're out there on the road, remember you're longer and wider than you would be. You're slower than you would be. So take extra time, take breaks, use your mirrors uh, and make sure you, you don't forget that you've got a giant, uh, a giant box behind you that you're towing. That was Director of Content at Drive, James Ward, speaking to The Wire. And unfortunately, that's the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between radio stations 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations where this program has been produced. And we pay our respects to Aboriginals, Elders, past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shakur, coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.